What is Crackalackin' Hardwood Knox listeners? I am Dan Valley coming at you without my co-host and completely solo today for a mailbag podcast. I wanted to squeeze this in, even though it's solo, because we are, in addition to rolling out the Western Conference report cards for the offseason this week, Eastern Conference is already up. Please check those out if you have not already. Uh, our first team previews will start going live next week, and those will probably be coming fast and furious so wanted to make sure we should be recording some mailbags and league-wide podcast still during that time but as long as i can get another mailbag in for y'all i wanted to make sure that i could before we dive in and we have a lot of questions to get to i'll try to get to as many as as possible uh, i just want to remind implore beg plead with everyone continue rating reviewing and subscribing to us wherever you get your podcast whether you use itunes or not please head over there search hardware knocks throw us a five-star rating write a review we got one more that we really appreciated. So keep helping us juice those numbers through the roof, but also just make sure you're subscribing and downloading our episodes wherever you actually do get your podcast because we are everywhere. Also remember to subscribe to us on YouTube, head over to youtube.com, search Hardwood Knox, hit that subscribe button. You can follow us on Twitter at Hardwood Knox. We are at Instagram at Hardwood underscore Knox and on TikTok at Hardwood Knox. So please, please, pretty please with sugar on top, follow us. And subscribe to us at all those different places. Without further delay, let's dive right in here with, to these bunch of questions. We'll begin with James Chibuto asks, are there any NBA players who are misplaced? Like Draymond Green would be if he were lo- on a losing team, but because of how good the players around him are, he raises their ceiling tremendously. I would argue, I don't know how good the players around Draymond Green are right now, aside from Stefan Curry and a healthy Clay Thompson, if he ever gets there. But I do sort of see this point where Draymond Green is sort of what might be a wasted talent on a team that is not good, or maybe you just won't feel his impact as much on a team that's not at least contending for a playoff spot. I had a hard time identifying this player. If anyone else has their their own ideas, please feel free to throw them at me on Twitter, at Damp Valley, or the at Hardwood Knox account as well. I have two that I came up with. One I think is fairly obvious. Thaddeus Young in San Antonio, and you could kind of say the same about him in Chicago last year, depending on how you felt about Chicago as a playoff team. He's sort of turned into this small ball five now. He is one of the most fundamentally sound defenders in the league and has been for, for quite some time, does all the little things, is an excellent helper. He really upped his passing in Chicago last year as well. And so while there's still this finite range to his jump shot or lack thereof, he is someone that can really elevate you by making smart decisions and doing the, the smaller lifts, but doing and completing a, a ton of them. And so I'm not trying to crap all over San Antonio's roster here, but as of right now, even if they don't make another move, even if they're not in sellers mode, they do not profile as a real playoff threat, at least to me. And now you're putting them on a team where depending on how much you want to play Jakob Pertl, maybe Drew Eubanks, or you're going to view them as, as a four, Alpha Rucamino is in there. Do you have enough shooting, just general raw shooting to, to get him the space necessary to make some passes on the short roll or even going to put him in those situations to, to give him an opportunity to make passes out of the short roll? I honestly do not know. It would be cool and I think more impactful to see him on a better team. Phoenix has been floated as one of the ones that would be great for him. Salary matching could get pretty tough for them unless San Antonio is willing to take on Dario Sarts. Even then, if you're Phoenix, you have to weigh the cost of it. Probably cost you Jalen Smith. Are you actually going to do this? Because of what he does on offense, where he's not going to give you just a ton of range, you could argue then that he is going to be a tough fit, even if you are a really good team. And so I get that aspect as well. But if you were looking for sort of a way 
to downsize without sacrificing anything on, on the defensive end. Like I, for one, would have been more interested in seeing him in New Orleans than a Jonas Valanciunas, just because I think he, Valanciunas improves New Orleans significantly on the offensive end, but just isn't going to do enough for them defensively. And while Thaddeus Young might be sort of a, a spacing liability, just what he could bring you as a secondary helper uh, on defense, while also sort of allowing you to downsize, you could continue to play super fast with Zion on the floor. Not that that would have been a problem to begin with. Minnesota for him, again, would have been interesting now. I know he's been there, sort of done that, but they've been in the market for a four basically since the dawn of time at this point. That's that's more so a, a joke, but they were hot for fours this year, and it did seem like they were prioritizing guys who could chuck threes. They looked at Larry Markinen. They're in the John Collins. They looked at John Collins, but they're also interested in Ben Simmons, and Thaddeus Young certainly gives you more range than Ben Simmons. I've been curious to see what he looked like in Miami, and the path to get him there would have been obviously difficult with Kyle Lowry coming in but you did sign ended up with uh pj tucker there who makes less than thaddeus young um for this season but thaddeus young does i wouldn't say he's this he's not the same level of individual defender and i don't think you want him guarding down as often as you would pj tucker but man a bam thaddeus young uh front court with jimmy butler there kyle lowry that is ridiculously tough to to go up against and is really going to wreak havoc all all over the place. And I think Thaddeus Young does more on offense for you. The Heat needs shooting. P.J. Tucker, without question, is going to space the floor more by virtue of where he stands most of the time. But his volume is so low, I just wonder if there would have been that much of an offensive trade-off. So those are just some teams, and there are many of them. I mean, imagine Thaddeus Young in Los Angeles with the Clippers as a small ball five. That would have been you know, playing the Marcus Morris role, but just better defensively. And you could play him and Marcus Morris together during the minutes that you don't have of each um, Zubats or Serge Ibaka on the court. Harry Giles, I think, is with the Clippers now. I believe he signed there. Um, or maybe he worked out with them. But they have big man minutes to to sort of spare. And that would have been a fun fit for him. And it still could be if San Antonio looks at looks at moving him. I don't know if they want to take on Luke Kennard in, in such a deal. And the Clippers are pretty limited in, in what they can give up, certainly looking at, at salary matching tools. I think you could even argue if Golden State really didn't care about spacing and they don't want to play Draymond at the five, you can run sort of the Thaddeus Young, Draymond Green hybrid front court. Would have been the same idea with a Paul Millsap there, except Millsap's a, a better shooter. Uh, Young would have been great in Brooklyn. At, they went the route of signing all the bigs, but not many of them versatile bigs, except for Paul Millsap. You could probably envision him a little bit. When you look at Denver, just the backup five minutes are shrouded in a uh, You know what? They're really not. They have Jeff Green and Jermichael Green. I take that back. In addition to Zeke Naji, I don't think Bol Bol, who's listed on a lot of depth charts, is a backup five. I, I don't think he'll get a lot of minutes to five. Probably need to play him more so at the three uh, around just now. But I, he, I think you could certainly find good fits for him, is my point. Much better fits than San Antonio. There will be an offensive trade-off in some situations with teams where maybe they just don't have the, the juice to do that. Charlotte would have been great run him as the small ball five, because it seems like you do still want to downsize. You only really added Mason Plumlee and then Kai Jones, unless you really plan on letting Vernon Carey Jr. Loose and Kai Jones, which I don't imagine that they do. Um, it does feel like PJ Washington is going to see a bunch of minutes at the five once more. I think you could certainly get away with that with the way Charlotte plays. But if you look at team at like Boston, where I think that Thaddeus Young would have been a really good fit. Do they have enough spacing around him? Just, there isn't a lot of raw shooting on that roster. So there's certainly a complexity to his offensive fit, even though he gives you some of that playmaking as someone who can put the ball on the floor. Just you look at the way that defenses will guard him in the playoffs that will create problems for a lot of different teams. 
Uh, let's go to this question from Carrigan. How are opposing teams going to score at the rim with 48 minutes of either Rudy Gobert or Hassan Whiteside on the court in Utah? I guess the, the question would be, as usual, when Rudy Gobert is on the court for you know 30-plus minutes a game, I don't know. Uh, the Jazz were fourth in opponent frequency led up at the rim last year. Only Boston, Milwaukee, and Washington were in front of them, and their minutes with Rudy Gobert were just predictably ridiculous. Uh, opponents got to the court 8% less free, uh, got to the rim 8% less frequently with Rudy Gobert on the floor. That's just a monstrous differential. Hassan Whiteside has typically been pretty good when you look at his on-off splits with opponents getting to the rim when he is in the game. That being said, my two, the two layers to this question are one. I don't think that Hassan Whiteside is going, this isn't, I don't think I know that Hassan Whiteside just isn't going to cover as much ground as Rudy Gobert does. When you look at all he's responsible for within the jazz defensive model, I think he's a better backup five option for them than Derek favors simply because of their contracts. And there's just no use when you have Rudy Gobert investing serious money in a backup five. And just because it gives you some of the same offensive element, just someone who um, you could lob it to, or also he could just roll the basket, does not have the same level of passing. Rudy Gobert is a much better screener too, but just similar archetype of player. There's a lot, there's a huge difference to them on defense though. He's easier to get around. And I think that quicker twitchier ball handlers, especially if Utah funnels them into the paint, they're going to have a higher success rate going after Hassan Whiteside. And so he might need some more athletic wings in front of him, which Utah still does not have. They have Royce O'Neal and that's, you know, Joe Ingles is solid. That's great. It's just, there's not a lot of speed on the perimeter there. So I do think that the defense could struggle in certain second unit heavy lineups. I'm not saying it definitely will. And again, I think he's at relative to the contract and then what is Sun Whitehead's going to do. And just, it feels like Derek favors is, you know, since the second half of 2019, 2020 in new Orleans, it felt like he's kind of been on a, a gradual deterioration. Um, he could be an upgrade, but I just, I'll still be wondering how often opposing second units, or if there are starters, they're able to go up against Hassan Whiteside on the jazz. They might have more success at getting to the rim. I'm also hoping this is the second part of this, that Utah does experiment more with small ball lineups when Gobert is not on the court. I don't, again, I don't think Gobert is a liability in the playoffs. I've been very emphatic about that um, on this podcast. This is more of a, what he's responsible for gets tougher in certain matchups like that against the Los Angeles Clippers when he just doesn't have as much help as he needs on the perimeter. And they are going to run out those really smaller fours, whether it's a, you know, Marcus Morris or Nicola, Nicholas Batum at the, the five type of arrangement. And those matchups are so few and far between really where there's an actual problem for Rudy Gobert that you don't need to make small ball a staple, but you are going to have on the average night between you know, 13 to 20 minutes where you can experiment with that. And I would like to see Rudy Gay at the five, maybe even Eric Pascal at the five, just to see what it looks like. Or if you want to even give Azabuki a shot this season, that's fine too. I just think there needs to be, I want to see more of a pocket size from court from Utah, just in smaller stretches to see if they can go to it if they need it. And that's just, it's not a knock against Rudy Gobert. It's just matchup proofing yourself. Or, or doing a better job of matchup proofing yourself, I would argue. So, yes, I think the Jazz will still be one of the five or seven best teams in the league at dissuading shots at the rim. Uh, they have Rudy Gobert. He exists. And it's not just him, you know, it's not just him blocking shots, contesting shots. It's he's he, the concept of Rudy Gobert as a deterrent is, is what I'm getting at. Him just being on the floor is going to 
convince opponents not to necessarily be as aggressive in the lane. They'll pull up for shorter floaters, or maybe teams will rely more on jump shots. This question, this next question comes from a virtual fan in Jurassic Park. What position has OG Ananobi been most effective at locking down last season? He's known for being the most versatile defender that can guard one to five, but I want to know what position he locks down the best. Feel free to add any notable players at that position that OG shut down. I won't add any significant, like notable players here. I also would push back that about OG Ananobi being the most versatile defender in the league. I think that probably still goes to Ben Simmons, even though OG is asked to guard fives more than him. Um, so yeah, there's an argument there. Maybe I'll push back lightly on that or say that it's, it, it's at least a debate. So if you look at B-Ball Index's matchup data, their defensive versatility metric, uh, OG Ananobi guarded every position at least 17% of the time, which is just absolutely mind-blowing. There was a nice balance to his um, reps against the one, two, and three, and five spots. Um, they were between 17 and 19% of the time. The largest share, possession share, for his defensive matchup was power forward at 28.2%. And I actually do think that's the position he's best suited to lock down because that's what's going to, I think, force him to bust out literally everything that he does. Because when you're guarding the four, there can be some size there. But nowadays, there's also guys that can put the ball on the floor. Um, but there are certain matchups too where maybe that four isn't as dynamic and you can, this isn't necessarily what you want to use OG Anano before, but you can use him to do a lot of other things where um, if he wants to you know, party crash lanes away from the ball. And I think the four provides that mix that's going to bring out the best of OG Ananobi. And then when you just look at his size and strength, like, yeah, he's fine going up against wings and guards. We've just, we've seen it. He can do it, but you do want to sort of give him a spell to where maybe he has to rely on his strength more than, than just his quickness, because you don't want to necessarily exhaust him. And it's very rarely that the four spot is going to be the, the best player on the team or the primary ball end or make no mistake. OG Ananobi is great in that role. He's great in almost any defensive role, but he's going to shut you down. If, if that, if it's just not the number one option, or if it's just not the guy who's tasked with putting the ball on the floor as often, um, or maybe someone who's going to benefit from just a lot of screen action, where I think you can run into that at the five spot where not only are some players going to be bigger and stronger than him, but if he has to cover some, some role guys off movement, like that explosion is just harder to stop in general, even if you're Rudy Gobert going toe to toe with someone at the rim. So I, I just think the, the four spot and that gets kind of blurry because, you know, who constitutes a four? Like, is it, is it a LeBron James? Is it a Ben Simmons? Is it, uh, is it a Jason Tatum? They're, they're, they're all over the place. And I think fours are a lot of the times glorified wings. So I would consider, you know, OG Ananobi a wing defender and he's going to be to me, even though he's just such a great on ball guy, there are things that he can do sort of, chasing around people rather than having to be the the point of attack guy i will say maybe it's better to distinguish between this if you're asking me do i want to see him as sort of a point of attack defender which you know a lot of guys do receive um receive credit for or a chaser or maybe an anchor big and he is sometimes an anchor big with the way that he defends i just that's clearly not the best way for him to, to defend i think it's going to be the the chaser someone's it's just going to encompass more responsibilities and less of going up against those those point of attacks uh, but he can do anything and it remains ludicrous that he did not make all defense this past year i will i'll certainly stand by that um next question from jeffrey arse asks are there any free agents still available that could make a significant difference 
for a playoff team. Uh, look, Frankie Lakina, that's the answer here. There's a 3 and D wing still on the market that is just sitting there ripe to be signed and can make a huge difference on a team. I don't think a ton of people agree with me, but I actually do believe that, that Frankie Lakina belongs on a roster, and I think that he could really help a team out. Uh, some other guys, I mean, look, a lot of this is going to depend on whether they're, they're healthy or not. James Ennis will be the top one for me. This is just someone last year who, yeah, he's been like a 3 and D contributor, kind of in theory. He shot under 34% from deep um, between 2017 and 2020. But last season, he buried 43.3% of his triples on the Orlando Magic. You know, that it was on the Magic, where you're just not, yeah, he probably got quality looks, but it's not like he was getting a boon from all this great creation around him or this pristine spacing. And he was guarded capably four positions, four positions. Just get that guy on your roster. I think he can really help out teams that need wing depth, especially plug and play ones on offense. He did, he was saddled with a little bit more, hey, attack this open space in Orlando. I don't necessarily know that you want him doing that. Um, maybe you want him doing that a little bit more often than a Reggie Bullock. Let's say he has a learner's permit for putting the ball on the floor wide open spaces, but I remain somewhat shocked that he's unsigned because I think he's a rotation guy that can help a team. Uh, Avery Bradley, that's another name that springs to mind. Uh, still kind of a three and D guy. I think people have sort of you know walk, walked back too much of his defensive value. He's just, He's a better individual defender, and that can that can be lost in the shuffle when you look at some of the assignments he has to cover. But he his efficiency plummeted when he was in Houston. I, I get it, but that was only ten appearances with the Rockets last year. So I I do think that if you put him on the court on a good team, that's not going to ask him to really do anything with the ball, give him some some good spacing, uh, or give him plenty of space to fire off his shots. That he's still going to help you on defense. Problem is he's 6'2", and so he's dealing with mostly guards. You can get the one and two out of him, but you're not going to want to throw him up against threes. I still think he's clearly someone who, when healthy, can can help a team. I'm a big Garrison Matthews guy. That's someone who gives you some motion shooting, and I do think he has some confidence off the dribble, um, and he showed not so much last year, but his first season. Like He will go through contact and maybe get some of these like gimme opportunities at the line. I'm not saying that needs to be a part of his game, but if you can just get someone who's taking these ultra deep threes and the level of difficulty on them is higher than easy or easy to medium, he helps your offense immediately. And I think that he competes on defense. He's not like this great defender, but he has some size to him at six, five and you can get him going up against twos and, and some threes. So I, I think he certainly belongs on a roster maybe a West Matthews sort of in the same vein as a Garrison Matthews to be, to be honest with you, definitely a more established defender, a more established player overall. Um, I'm a little bit surprised that he hasn't found a, a home yet. Uh, he's last year in Los Angeles. It was not a good season for him. He is age 34 and that certainly has to factor into it. Has an Achilles injury in his rear view. Um, another guy that could help a team though. Uh, JJ Redick, if he's healthy, look, this is someone who, you know, he gives you, yes, there's the motion shooting there and the shooting tends to age well, but like he can also handle the ball for you. Um, you know, pick and roll initiation has never been a huge part of his arsenal, but he's ranked in the 95th percentile or better of scoring efficiency out of the pick and roll through each of the past four seasons. So just even in spot up duty, uh, he can certainly give you something. Some other names to consider is you do have D DeMarcus Cousins out there. He gave the Clippers just some, some, yeah, I'll say really nice short spurts during the postseason. So if you want to see whether there's anything there left left to plumb, uh, 
I think you could also go with um, who I'm actually surprised that he didn't find a home uh, or hasn't found a home sooner. And he's just signed a training camp deal with the Clippers. But like, this is someone who needs to stick. I would say Isaiah Hartenstein uh, is someone that can also really help uh, a squad of Aaron Baines is still floating around out there as is Langston Galloway. Um, So those are all names. I think they could significantly help contenders. If I had to narrow it down to just a couple I'm probably going to go with, I think James Ennis is my top guy right now. After that, I might go with a Wesley Matthews or, or, J, or a JJ Redick or a Garrison Matthews, excuse me, over Wesley Matthews. I think you can make a case for Avery Bradley Bear, but certainly James Ennis is, is right there at the top. And if the right team comes along and signs Frankie Lakina, he can, he can be there too. I just, I want to get that off, off my chest. This next question comes from CSS. Which player under 25, other than Luca, Zion, and LaMelo, has the highest superstar upside? There are a lot of choices here. Um, and so if you sort it by players who were in their age 23 season or earlier last year, so they're going to be under age 25 this upcoming season, you get into some just like, you know, it feels like these players should have been thrown in under the umbrella that CS gave us where the, of the exclusions where it's, you know, Bam Adebayo is on that list. Jason Tatum's on that list. Trey Young is on that list. Um, Shea Gilgis-Alexander's on that list for me. And so I don't really know where the, the Jamal Murray is here too. I don't really know where the delineation is, but if you were to exclude, like, I think you have to loop Trey Young, Jason Tatum, Doncic, Zion Williamson, and you want to throw the mellow ball in there as well if you want to loop those in the same tier where it's these MVP type prospects. And so even a John Morant, just they've established that they are MVP level already uh, or not, not already, but a LaMelo ball after his rookie season, you would argue that he's this transcendent prospect. So I'm, I'm disqualifying all those guys. I, I think you can still include a Brandon Ingram there, a Michael Porter there. I don't think those guys are, are quite there. De'Aaron Fox, he goes to Alexander fall just outside. Jamal Murray as well. And he would ultimately be my pick. You could, some people mentioned that Anthony Edwards here. I'm sure some people mentioned Cade Cunningham and, and Jalen Green here as well. I'll listen to those. I think it's Shea Gilgis Alexander, though, for me. I'm not going to regurgitate the same stat we do for him, but just the way that he excelled and improved Oklahoma City's offense when he was on the court as their end all be all last year, their offense was bad. Let me make that clear with him on the floor. It was unwatchable when he was off the court. So he was making this huge difference. And it was his first year without a safety net. He was responsible for creating so many of his own shots. Nearly 90% of his baskets went unassisted. Um, he's entering his age 23 season. You have to watch the, the plantar fascia injury. Those can be, be fickle to come back from. And I, I think that he should probably be more commonly mentioned in the, the same vein, same breath as Luka Doncic, Zion Williamson, Jason Tatum, Trey Young, Lamelo. I would even argue that De'Aaron Fox gets mentioned ahead of him a lot, and I'm not sure that he should. I think Shea Gilgis Alexander right now is better than De'Aaron Fox, even though the SGA's defense, it's there and the versatility is palpable, but it 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 could be a lot better when you're just looking at what he does on the ball. He's certainly above Brandon Ingram for me. I think even Michael Porter Jr. gets mentioned above him. Bam Adebayo versus Shea Gilgis Alexander long term is sort of an interesting debate to watch just completely two different players but i think bam has just been billed as this he's a defensive anchor this passing big man who can really run fast breaks he doesn't shoot threes but because of his level of self-creation on the offensive end and just all he can do with the ball and the different mechanisms by which he can score that he's viewed as a better player than shakos Alexander, or just a uh, you know a, a more likely superstar or megastar long term 
I might put SGA ahead of him. Maybe not right now. That's, you know, going through player rankings that I believe I'll eventually have to do for Bleacher Report before the season starts. Um, that will be just one of the interesting flashpoint moments, two players to, to go between. And look, there are a lot of names to, to choose from here, but I, I think it's Shea Gilgis-Alexander for me. I'm, I've been so high on him for a while, and I'm anxious to see what he can do on a team that one lets him play the entire season, but when there's a little bit more better talent around him to see how much he can actually elevate his, his teammates. Uh, And that just made me think this is going back to the first question bonus answer here. I had Darius Basie marked down as a player that might not quite fit right now. And so if you're still listening to this uh, James Chiapucho to to this point, I would also throw Darius Basie in there where I wonder what he would look like on a team with more spacing and just, you know, Shea Gilts Alexander actually being healthy, but maybe two guys, um, who can help you, who can help pilot your offense rather than just having one. So he's able to just focus on bringing this mixed bag of tricks that he does on offense all together, but the pressures off of uh, is sort of off him to, to self-create feels like someone that could really help out, make a dent on a, on a good team where he's, he's asked to do less, I guess would be the, the best way to go about that. This next question, this next question comes, I'm trying to talk too fast here. I talk fast enough already. But this next question comes from GP3. Would Colin Sexton, Kevin Love, and an unprotected first be enough to land Ben Simmons? I'm going to say no. Um, Colin Sexton's about to get paid, and it doesn't even seem like Cleveland necessarily wants to, to pay him. I do think he's probably underrated just when you look at – like I think sometimes we can underrate 24-plus points per game, four-plus assists per game on roughly league average efficiency where he's shooting a ridiculous percentage from three point range. Like, I just think that we can underrate that when the guy's so young, we don't need to overcomplicate this. I know I'm a big fan of going in deep. I understand that not all the analytics love him. I know his off the dribble shooting isn't necessarily there. We still need to see what he's going to be on defense. Colin Sexton is good. Still, he's about to get a new contract. I think he's probably a great fit in Philly, but he doesn't really give you that point of attack score necessarily, at least not the, the finished product one. And now you're also including another deal in Kevin Love, two years, 60 ish million left. It's a net negative at this point. And he could fit next to Joel Embiid in theory. However, if you're going from Ben Simmons to Kevin Love and Colin Sexton, your defense is going to suffer a bunch. It's already going to suffer a bunch when you're losing Ben Simmons, basically no matter who you trade him for. That's probably going far. We need to see what the actual return is. Now, the unprotected pick might be interesting because if you send Ben Simmons to Cleveland, are they going to be good right away with Darius Garland, Jared Allen, Evan Mobley? Who that might be another answer to the, a player that could look like he's out of place might be Evan Mobley with the way that the Cavs have built their roster, having uh, paid Jared Allen and then acquired Larry Marketing. But I digress there. So I, it, maybe it's attractive because you don't think Cleveland will be good right away in 2022. They're probably not going to be one of the three or four worst teams in the league at that point. And if you're Philly, Maybe you have reached the juncture of we will accept a package where picks, unprotected picks, are the highlight because we'll either draft and develop someone on Joel Embiid's timeline, unlikely, or more more likely, put those picks together and then go out and trade for that next star. Where instead of you know swapping Ben Simmons for Bradley Beal or Damian Lillard, when those two actually become available, you have the picks to lean on because maybe Washington Portland don't want to you know start their reboot around Ben Simmons, which is a a fair, reasonable stance to take. This is not a package that gets you there, though. It's just, and I know everyone's so low on Ben Simmons. Um, I've seen Portland fans that don't think that they want to include anything in addition to CJ McCollum to get Ben Simmons. I staunchly disagree with that stance, by the way, just because of what Ben Simmons does for you on offense. We need to veer 
a little bit further back towards reality with Ben Simmons. There are real harmful limitations to him on offense and his passing can be overrated in certain situations. And I, he's not, you know, you can't just put him on the type of team you could with Giannis, who, by the way, was on a team that really sucked at shooting for much of the playoffs. But I think you could envision a situation where if Ben Simmons is surrounded by all shooters and then just one legitimate point of attack scorer, that he looks like an all NBA player again, not just all defense, but all NBA player. And so the fact that you have that path in a Ben Simmons, you have to give up real stuff to get this guy. I don't think that's enough. This Cleveland package of Kevin Love, Colin Sexton, or an unprotected first. I don't think it's nearly enough just because if you're Philadelphia, uh, you're giving up not only the best player in this deal, but you're also taking back like one of what looks like right now, a close to dead weight contract for Kevin Love and who's a less than ideal fit next to Joel Embiid because you don't want to play two bigs at the same time. Kevin Love's not going to give you any defense at the four. And yeah, you'll have Joel Embiid on the back line, but there's already going to be a ton of pressure on him when Ben Simmons isn't there. What else could you include if you're Cleveland? And this is going to step on the toes of another question. So let's actually skip ahead. I have it marked down somewhere else. Um, but this comes from Cody Cronin asks, how likely is it for the Cavs to land Simmons in, in your opinion? And Cody has a second question. I'll, I'll move ahead to that after this. I don't think it's very likely. I just, it's so hard when you're looking at having to match the salary because once you get beyond Kevin Love, like the expensive players that you're going to trade just almost don't really exist. And maybe I shouldn't even go that far, but you enter the dilemma of, okay, what does Philly need with, with rookie Rubio, who's one of the more expensive players on your team? Um, Jared, even if you're waiting to when Jared Allen can be traded, why would Philly want him? It's the same with Larry Marketing. Like that doesn't really help your trade package for midseason for Ben Simmons at all. And as of right now, you're, the most expensive salary that you're eligible to trade would be a, a Ricky Rubio at 17.8. And then after him, um, it's aside from Kevin Love. So you have Kevin Love, Ricky Rubio. And then after them, Jetty Osmond's the most expensive player that you're eligible to trade right now. So that just and he makes eight point one million dollars and is is not very good. So that makes it tough. I think you, it would have to be a scenario where you're giving up probably two of Sexton, Okoro, and Garland, plus a ton of picks, and then Philly is probably taking back a salary it does not want. I would still argue that instead of taking back Kevin Love, if I'm Philly, I'm waiting to midseason to see the deal maybe fleshed out. Like, can I would probably prefer Larry Marketing on his uh, contract to eating what's left on Kevin Love's, or just take Ricky Rubio and now you have that expiring contract to use that $17.8 million to use as a chip in, in future trades, plus two of Garland, Okoro, and Sexton, and then picks, plural. And I, I think it would have to be at least two unprotected first rounders. Because again, Ben Simmons is really good and you're not sending anyone tangibly unless it's Garland and Sexton, like maybe the swing piece swing stardom there still exists, but you're not sending Philly the next, you know, great young player tangibly like that. It's not that type of guy isn't in the deal. So I don't think Philly is going to be able to get what we saw, you know, James Harden get for Houston, obviously, even though that's what the Sixers are looking for. And I would argue if they can't find a deal, they shouldn't settle. They should wait. I don't care about the awkwardness. Um, settling is going to harm your window with Joel Embiid and trying to navigate it for a little bit without Ben Simmons will, in my humble opinion. So yeah, if, if you're Cleveland, I think that's the pathway to it. And what, what really does hurt your trade package or 
and maybe you like that, but like two of your most valuable, in theory, let's just order midseason, everyone's eligible to be traded. The Philly like doesn't have a need for Jared Allen or even an Evan Mobley, who you could trade right now. So those are just players that you write off right away. And even a Kevin Love, like that really hurts you that your best salary filler in that deal just has really no value to Philly unless he comes on for a half season. And this is a trade being made midstream and he's played fantastic basketball. Maybe then Philly can reconsider its stance and you're looking at Kevin Love, Sexton, and I still think you would need Garland in that. Um, and I don't even know if Philly would accept that just because you have Tyrese Maxey already, you have Shake Milton. I'm not saying that either one of those guys is better than Sexton or Garland long-term. Maxey might have a shot, to be honest. But do you, you – know, I think it. you definitely can take one of Garland or Sexton in that deal, for sure. But it kind of is like, well, then why would you take two? Now, so you just have those four guys on the roster. It makes it a little difficult. And then your backcourt rotation is sort of still small. And so now it becomes, then you almost have to include Okoro, and then it's one of Sexton or Garland. Um, and Sexton makes more sense for Philly right now, but Garland might make more sense long-term because he's more of a point-of-attack creator. It's really complicated. But th- that's the baseline for me is I think, you have to find a sal- you have to find salary filler that's not Kevin Love. So it's either Ricky Rubio or maybe you're moving Larry Market in midseason. That's part of it. And then two of Garland, Okoro, Sexton. And I would say at least two unprotected first rounders. And if you're Cleveland at that point, I just don't know if it's worth it because of the timeline that they're on. Cody Cronin's next question was other than CP3, what NBA players are statistically keeping the mid-range alive? Uh, I don't I <laughs> This question is weird to me because I don't think the mid-range is dead, but when you look at guys who sort of lean on it as an actual crutch to their game and are self-creating it a bunch and should be taking these shots, the names that come to mind are DeRozan is still there, 47.1% for mid-range last year um, on top 10 volume per game. Uh, He already mentions Chris Paul. Bradley Beal is there. He shot. 47.4% 47.4% for mid-range on 5.6 attempts per game. That was the fourth most in the league. Joel Embiid was sneakily there this season. A lot of his mid-range jumpers um, were unassisted. I don't know that he's someone who's really keeping it alive, though. So Bradley Beal, DeMar DeRozan, Devin Booker is right there. Um, 5.2 attempts per game, top 10 volume, 48.6% um, on those mid-range Jays. And, you know, the Vooch is high in volume there. So is Anthony Davis, who should not be taking mid-range jumpers. That's my stance. Get behind the three-point line. You just, you're not hitting your mid-range Jays at a high enough clip outside the bubble to, to justify taking them. Lamarcus Aldridge will do it too. But those, for some of those guys, they'll be pick and pop situations there. Same with Joel Embiid. But looking at guys who are taking them off the dribble, Julius Randle did that a lot last season. I still wouldn't throw him there. Maybe a Brandon Ingram, uh, his 5.8 attempts from mid-range, uh, per game last year were the second most in the league behind only Russell Westbrook, who no should not be taking mid-range jumpers. So I think the guys were actually keeping it alive. Let's let's narrow it down to five. I'm going to go with, in addition to Chris Paul, DeMar DeRozan, Devin Booker, Kevin Durant. That's just, he keeps any shot alive. Chris Middleton and Devin Booker. Those are the guys I'm going to go with. Devin Booker, KD, Chris Middleton, uh, DeMar DeRozan, and I'll say Bradley Beal there. Those are the players that are keeping the, the mid-range alive. So so there you go. And they all shot at least 45% from mid-range last year. Chris Middleton, you could bounce from that list because he took the shot, really didn't take it out of his diet. Almost five attempts per game. That was top 12 volume, and he shot at a 45.1% clip. It's not as heavy a part of his diet. Um, he was taking a ton of long twos, but that in-between game is still really lethal for him, and I would still put him in that same class as – I mean, Kevin Durant and Chris Paul are in, you know, 
a class all their own, but I would still put him alongside Devin Booker, DeMar DeRozan, Bradley Beal, the guys that you're actually okay with, maybe would even encourage getting to that spot. This next question here comes from, we did GP3s, the exception asks, what's Jason, Ta- what's Jason Tatum's chances of getting MVP this year? And so these questions are tough because I think I view MVP a lot differently than, uh, I do think it gets to a point where there's, a no-brainer pick like Nikola Jokic was this year. I don't weight team record as much as others do. So I'm viewing this through the prism of what would Jason Tatum have to do to actually win it. So I'm kind of trying to throw at least my own biases out the window. So there are a few things that need to happen here. Statistically, I don't know that anything needs to change for him. He averaged 26.4 points per game last year, 4.3 assists, 7.4 rebounds, 1.4 steals, shot 38.6% from three, 50.2% on twos. 86.8% at the foul line, fairly good volume there, career high, um, free throw attempts per game at 5.3 to go along with his career high minutes. Uh, His free throw rate per 36 minutes was uh, also a career high, though. So take that for what you will. Like The the numbers are there. Maybe he needs to get into that five assist range, and I would argue that might even be a necessity this year just based off, you know, you have Dennis Schroeder, you have Marcus Smart, there is Al Horford, but you did lose two of your most important creators over the offseason in Evan Fournier and, and Ken, a healthy Kemba Walker, um, which is very much a theory at this point. So the numbers are fine. And yet, there are different tweaks to his game. He's a fantastic off-ball defender. I think he's a really good defender overall. Some people think he's overrated there. I personally do not. Um, you want him to get to the rib more to kind of put more pressure on the basket. It does feel like his game sort of stalls out on jumpers a little too much. We saw his frequency uh, inside three feet last season drop from 24.8% in his third year of a shots came inside three feet to 19.7 last season. And so I've always thought the, the Kobeification of a shot profile has always been sort of overrated. And specifically towards the end of 2019, 2020, you did see that he put a ton of pressure on the basket and we've seen that he can put a ton of pressure on the basket and even just having things like he took a career high 20.6% of his shots from three to 10 feet last year, uh, that 20.6% of his shots came between three and 10 feet last year. And that was a career high. I, you probably want more of those looks to come from actual point blank blank range. Can he change his takeoff points or just be more aggressive finishing through traffic? He can make the tweaks to his game, but I think he's already at that MVP level. I guess if you are going flat out against, let's get to this. The Celtics need to be top three in the Eastern conference, probably a top five to seven team overall in the league for him to just garner that consideration. It just needs to happen at this point. I don't necessarily agree with that stance. I do think for the most part, it's a matter of fact, a matter of the, a matter of life within the MVP race. You might eventually see again, where you have the Russell Westbrook type season where he's just completely on his own. The team just lost one of the best players of, of all time. And he's doing anything and everything to keep them afloat and they're winning at a, you know, a 45 win plus win pace. So they sneak into that MVP award and a conference could be so deep that a really good team is technically a six seed that it could happen again. I just don't think it's going to next season and voters are going to gravitate toward the best players on the best team. So the Celtics need to be really good. What would help Jason Tatum there is that if they're top three in the East, I think they've probably exceeded um, expectations relative to, the national discourse right now, what people are expecting from them overall. And so if you're outperforming teams like the Heat, the Knicks, the Hawks, even, um, I doubt they outperform the Bucks and the Nets. I would be flabbergasted if that happened. Catastrophe has struck in one of those two situations if that's what's happening. So top three in the East. Now, 
let's say that they are and that Jason Tatum's numbers are relatively the same. Maybe he's at like 27 points, eight rebounds, five assists, yada, 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 similar efficiency, hitting all his off the dribble jumpers. If you're going flat out against, you know, a team in Dallas, maybe they're top three in the West and Luka Doncic is averaging a triple double or 30 points and 10 plus assists per game, or LeBron is doing the same thing for the Lakers. It does get difficult to beat those guys out because of how responsible they are for their team's offense. And I think that's a big part of this where even if subconsciously, a lot of people are, will be drawn towards the, the players who are the offensive lifelines, not just the top scorers, but also responsible for a lion's share of the, the, the offensive creation for others, uh, like Nikola Jokic with Denver or LeBron in Los Angeles, Luka in Dallas. So, and I don't know that Jason Tam then stands out enough on defense like a Giannis would for him to overcome that gap in roles. And it's not even a gap. It's, it, there's just, it's, it's, it's a, it's like a form. His, his role takes a different form than that of LeBron. The Celtics have never asked him to be their LeBron. I doubt they'll do that this season because they do have other guys who can handle the ball. And that's also never been his style. But if he makes the playmaking, another playmaking leap. And let's, there was a playmaking uptick last year. If he makes the leap, I think that's his most efficient path in addition to the Celtics being really good to his winning the MVP award next season. Would I bill him as a top five MVP candidate? I would not. Top 10? I might put him in there. And at my own personal ladder, like, yeah, I, I think he could easily be in the top 10. When you're looking at who's most likely to win, is he a top 10 candidate by the, the most basic criteria, the one that we've seen when looking at players to win. I mean, you get to five ahead of him f- fairly quickly at this point, probably. Like, you're definitely putting LeBron, Jokic, Giannis, Luka ahead of him. That's four right there. Probably someone from the Nets, whether it's Kevin Rand or James Harden. Probably a Steph, too. So the Celtics' success would have to really be up there and shock people because I think that would go a long way towards his case, but there also needs to be that playmaking leap. And I don't even know if he's going to be, you know, he might get to five plus assists. If he really wants to enter that top five discussion and become more of a no brainer candidate, can he get to like six or seven? That might really disarm people there. I don't know that the Celtics are going to ask him to do that. I think it's, he's probably capable, but just as Kevin Rant's never been saddled with that much playmaking responsibility. I do not necessarily know that he will be in Boston either. Next question, Nick Wilson asks, are the Spurs actually going to be as boring as everyone is making them out to be? I, I That's like a right of summer or right of offseason is to talk about how sport, boring the Spurs are going to be, I suppose. I don't find them boring. They do feel like they're rebuilding without having fully committed to it. And unless you're, if you're not interested in the developments of you know, Josh Primo is going to be, I think, the youngest player in the NBA next season. And they gave him, uh, during the time that he was healthy in summer league, a lot of on-ball license. If he's going to get that during the regular season, they're going to be a, a shit ton of fun. Um, what's going to happen with Lonnie Walker? Are they going to agree to an extension? If they don't, are they going to give him more responsibility because he kind of had a down year? Uh, DeJounte Murray, Derek White, two older guys, but still sort of to the point where they could get better. Is Do either of them break out as this number one Option now that DeMar DeRozan and LaMarcus Aldridge are both gone. What does Kelvin Johnson look like? Does he have more of a, a, a more layers to his offensive game where he's like kind of reckless and a bull in a china shop right now? But is, is there more finesse to his game? Can he hit more off off the dribble jumpers? 
Um, if Zach Collins is healthy, if he plays at any point this season, what does that look like? Um, will we see more of uh, Luka Simonic this season? It feels like the Spurs have sort of just been hiding him for this first two seasons of his career, and now might be the time where they break him out a little bit. There are a lot of interesting players on this team to me, but unless you think that they're going to obliterate expectations and enter the playoff race, maybe they hold on to Thaddeus Young all year, and Doug McDermott has a great follow-up to what he was doing in Indy last season. Devin Vassell might make a jump. He is one of my favorite prospects. I think he's going to be a really good player for a really good team eventually. I don't find the Spurs boring. Maybe people, and I don't say this insulting because there are, you know, I, I'll call them assholes who use casual fan as like this derogatory term. And a lot of them are, you know, well-respected like media members. This is not just, uh, this is not just people who say, Oh, you're a casual on Twitter. Like we need to get away from that. If people watch basketball casually, I welcome you. I want people to watch and enjoy the NBA. However, they want to watch and enjoy the NBA. Digressing again there though, is the casual fan going to be, you know, have this magnetic pull to the Spurs? My guess would be no. What I think they could do, and they're not necessarily built to do it, but they're not not built to do it either. They could just decide to play super fast, like just unleash these lineups, just get out and transition even more. Um, that could be difficult. I mean, you don't have DeMar DeRozan, who's a very methodical player, but you still do have a, a you know, Jakob Pertl, if he's on the court. I mean, even he's like someone who could run the floor. And yeah, DeJounte Murray and Derek White at points might want to play a little bit more methodically or deliberately, but just between Keldon Johnson and even what, just even these other guys, a Devin Vassell, like I said, with a Jakob Pertle looking at your bigs, um, Thaddeus Young, like your five spots there who could run the floor. Keldon Johnson, I think I already mentioned him for sure. Maybe you could just play it like this wildly fast pace that no one was expecting and you won't be boring, but just the sheer number or the sheer breadth of player development that will be going on, whether the Spurs are rebuilding or still trying to exist in that gray area between competing and rebuilding, I think they could certainly be interesting. And I hope they're willing to experiment and also give youth uh, a chance. And they're going to be forced to in some instances, but I'm talking about expanding the role of Devin Vassell, actually playing um, Josh Primo and even giving Lucas um, Simonich more of a chance, doing things along those lines. That could make them more interesting then perhaps people are expecting and who knows, maybe they are planning to do that. Uh, last two questions here, or actually, yeah, let, let's go. Let's go two more questions. Krong Thor asks, is there an untouchable LeBron stat? What's his most outrageous stat? And so I'm guessing this refers to career achievements rather than just last season. So I'll focus on that. I think what's going to end up being maybe his most untouchable stat. I feel like he's going to finish his career the all-time leader in minutes played in the postseason and the regular season. Right now, he is third at 61,091 minutes. He will finish second next year, barring any injury, ahead of Carmelo, who's in second place at 62,000, almost 800 minutes, a little under that. Kareem is roughly 4,000 minutes away from LeBron, and so that's like two more years worth. So if he plays for another three to four years, he's going to shatter that. And sort of looking at how – basketball is played now where there's i guess it's load management i i just feel like teams are more cautious with their young stars early where they're not even necessarily missing games you know not every player is subject to this Kawhi leonard curve that gets blown way out of proportion to me but we're not seeing you know the younger guys averaging 38 40 minutes a game because rotations are deeper and that's how maybe you're managing workloads rather than having players sit out a bunch of games i'm just curious whether 
which player is going to end up really touching that. I mean, LeBron is third all time in minutes played in the playoffs and regular season combined. I'm scrolling down the list right now to find the next active player on this list. And it's Carmelo Anthony at 32, who is, you know, a full almost 17,000 minutes behind LeBron combined. I I'm just, I don't just as Kareem has had this record for decades at this point, once LeBron gets it, I'm just going to assume that he gets it. I feel like it's something that'll hold for a while. Something that's a little bit more interesting. I don't know if it's as untouchable, but this is his most ridiculous stat to me. This dude just turns out 25, five and five seasons. Like it's nothing. LeBron has 15 seasons in which he's one qualified for the minutes per game leaderboard leaderboard and two averaged at least 25 points, five rebounds and five assists per game, 15 seasons of that. The next, the second, the player to have the second most of these seasons is Oscar Robinson at eight. Kobe Bryant and Michael Jordan are tied for third at seven. James Harden is currently fifth at six. Uh, Larry Bird, Kevin Durant, Tracy McGrady, Jerry West, and Russell Westbrook all had slash have four. What's interesting here is I think you look at a Luka Doncic has two of these seasons already. So I think you can look at him as a threat to this. So I'm not saying the stat is untouchable. But with a lot of these other guys, like James Harden didn't start racking up these types of numbers until later in his career. Kevin Durant's kind of always on the fringes of it. I think you can ask yourself, will he have the assist numbers? Even again, when you look at the types of teams that he's playing for. So this is a really hard benchmark to reach because here's what's going to happen is one, it's either going to take you a little while to reach the 25 and five mark consistently, even in this era of basketball, because maybe you don't start out as in high of a usage role for the first you know, one to four seasons of your career. Not everyone is just immediately given that type of offensive agency, or you're going to age out of it very quickly. And so LeBron is not like who is playing until they're age 35, 36, 37 seasons at this type of level. We've just really never seen it before. This is just unprecedented when you're looking at the, the durability, the responsibility. So yeah, maybe Luka Doncic gets there, but even, you know, James Harden, you could say, well, if he had played, like he is now for longer. He just didn't have that luxury in Oklahoma city. That's part of this longevity is that LeBron has had this role been this end all be all since basically entering the league to where he just churns out 25, five and five seasons. Like Michael Jordan and Oscar Robinson combined have the same number of 25 and five seasons as LeBron James for their career. I think you could even say LeBron having, this might be an even crazier way to, way to frame it is that LeBron has the same number of 25, five and five seasons for his career as James Harden, Kevin Durant and Russell as, and Russell Westbrook do combined. They have 14. So he has one more than them. Let me stop tripping over my words. LeBron has more combined seasons of averaging 25, five and five for his career than James Harden, Kevin Durant and Russell Westbrook do combined right now, 15 to 14. That's a wild fucking stat to me. Even it's just raw numbers, and I understand when you're comparing generations. All those players played in this year of basketball, so I'm making it. That's a, a what the fuck stat for LeBron that just flies under the radar now because again he spits out 25 and five seasons like they're they're absolutely nothing. This is a let's go with this final question from Jay Cobb. As who's the most efficient guard who played less than 30 minutes but more than 10 minutes last year? Uh, I did have to research this question because that's a very specific question. So 
what I did here is I, so I ended up sorting efficiency by true shooting percentage, and we'll get into you know whether the players will there or not. I also said they had to play in at least half of their team's games last year, so had to make a minimum of 36 appearances. The leading guard, and I, I should actually go with raw guard here as I'm looking at this because the first the first player spits out plays some uh, played some forward last year. So this is defining guard by how Basketball Reference defines it. The most efficient guard to meet this criteria was Damian Lee um, of the Golden State Warriors, 63-6 true shooting percentage. Garrison Matthews, Garrison Matthews was two, 63-5. Bryn Forbes was third, 63.1. Edmund Sumner was fourth, uh, 62.6. And shout out to Ed- Edmund Sumner, who has just recently suffered a major injury, really suffered him. Wayne Ellington was fifth. 62.5 true shooting percentage. Jalen Brunson, 61.8 true shooting percentage at six. Bob Bogdanovich at number seven, um, 61.6 true shooting percentage. Thomas Edoransky at eight, 61.4 true shooting percentage. John Contra at nine, 60.8. Luke Kennard at 10, 60.8 true shooting percentage. Sex, Seth, sex Curry, yes, Sex Curry. Seth Curry was at 11 for anyone who cares at 60.7 true shooting. Now, when you're looking at these players, not all of these guys are creating a ton of their own shots. A lot of these guys also aren't going up against starters. If you're just asking me from this group who fits the bill, who was the most efficient guard um, who played between 10 plus and sub 30 minutes per game, it, it would have to be Seth Curry to me there, just looking at his role and what it was. I think there's a case to be made um, maybe for a Wayne Ellington, Jalen Brunson or, or Bogdan Badanovich when you just kind of look at the, the ball handling that he was even saddled with yeah, a bigger um, he did struggle to stay healthy, but he was a bigger part of the ball handling pecking order in Atlanta than, than Seth Curry was in Philly, in, in my estimation. Um, Jalen Brunson certainly belongs there, at least you know prior to the playoffs. So those guys are, are all in there. But a lot of these players that are popping up on the list, they're guys that aren't tasked with creating their, their own shot, and there could be some smaller sample bias in there. But look, if I, if I was Garrison Matthews' agent, I would just point out that he is second on this list and why hasn't a team freaking signed me yet that'll do it for me and this mailbag i hope you guys enjoyed it please please pretty please remember to rate review and subscribe to hardwood knox wherever you're getting your podcast follow us on youtube hardwood knox just search us there hit subscribe follow us on twitter at hardwood knox western conference report cards are coming if you've not checked out our eastern conference report cards um, it was a monster pod two plus hours the west will probably be the same but we do do timestamps. that's something we try and do so please this was your first time listening and you got through my my stammering and my accelerated the, the accelerated pace at which I speak. Subscribe to us. Download every episode. We hope you come back. Until next time, though, and as always, I leave you with the shout-out to the one, the only, the still, somehow, someway, inexplicably, unforgivably, unsigned, Frank Nielakina.